We're in Romans chapter 3, and if you're using a church Bible, you'll find that on page 940. And we stopped last week at verse 20, so we're going to pick up this week at verse 21, and we're going to read down to verse 26. Romans 3, 21 to 26, and as usual, I know it'll be helpful to me and to you for you to have your copy of Scripture open, reading along with me. Before we do read God's Word and come to this amazing portion of Scripture, let's take a moment and call on Him to bless the preaching and receiving of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do again lift up our voices to you. We do so in reliance upon the grace of our God and the grace and work of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that we would know his working in our hearts this morning. We pray that you would send him to make your word powerfully effective in our souls, to take the work of Jesus and to apply it to us. We pray that we would know our union with Christ in a deeper way and that we would have deeper communion with the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would make us attentive. We pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching and hearing and believing and keeping of your holy word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. And um, Paul has just finished two chapters of giving us the reason we need the gospel. And now he's going to give us the gospel. And in verse 21, we read, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at this present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God endures forever. Well, as I came to this passage this week, I thought there's really no better passage I could have picked for us for New Year. All of us look back over the past year. We look back. We have regrets. We didn't succeed in the areas that we wanted to succeed in. We didn't grow in the areas we wanted to grow in. We sinned far more than we wanted to sin if we're Christians. Our consciences were scarred. Because of sin, many times through the year, we struggled with guilt in our souls. We struggled with, why can't I get over this particular sin? We, some of us, maybe had financial setbacks and all kinds of other discouragements. And if we're honest with ourselves, when we look back over a year, there are far more regrets than there are joys. If we're honest with ourselves, there are generally far more regrets when we look back over a past year. This is why people make resolutions. New year, new beginning, new start, new opportunities, new chance to do better. And I think it's interesting because really what we need more than any New Year's resolution is we need to be rooted in the truth of the gospel of what we already have in Jesus Christ and who we are in him. More than anything else that you need, more than a a healthier bank account, more than a, a, a fit body, more than anything else that you need, is to know who you are in Jesus and to know who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And so it's fitting as we come into a new year that we come here in the book of Romans and we come to what has been called the Acropolis of the Christian faith. 
Romans 3, 21 through 26 has been called the Acropolis of the Christian faith. Martin Luther said that it is the most important section of this book, and it is the most important section in the entire Bible. I actually think Luther's right. I don't think that's an overstatement. Romans 3, 21 to 26 are some of the most important verses you will ever read. John Piper said, these few verses will do more for your soul than reading 10,000 books on self-improvement. You could read 10,000 books on leadership, self-improvement, and marriage, and these few verses will do more good for your soul if the Holy Spirit will take them and work them into us. And as we've already seen, we've gone over over the last few weeks, chapters 1 through 3, really, are Paul setting out the plight of man. He's setting out how sinful man is. The Gentiles are sinful. Jews are sinful. Everybody's sinful. Jews are trying to justify themselves by the law. Gentiles are living in all kinds of pagan wickedness. Everybody is Uh, under the wrath of God. Everybody's under God's condemnation. And then he comes to a glorious climax here in in, uh, verse 21, and he says, but now, but now. I wish we could go back and revisit everything that I preached on from chapters 1 through 3. I know you don't want me to. It would be good if we could just go back and we could revisit all of that again to get the force of what Paul is saying here. And in these words, and this is what I want you to get this morning, in the but now of Romans 3.21 is the totality of the riches of God's grace and mercy and kindness in Jesus Christ. In the but now of Romans 3.21 is everything crucial to your eternal life and the heart of the gospel itself. Notice what Paul says there, and we're going to look at this under three easy headings, I think, this morning, and I'm just going to do the whole Reformation sola thing. I think first we'll see the righteousness of God through faith alone, and secondly, we'll see the righteousness of God by, in Christ alone. And then thirdly, the righteousness of God by grace alone. In faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone. We'll notice that Paul has been dealing with that very intricate theological argument about why did God give the law? The law demanded obedience. The, God gives the commandments and the law. And he says, obey, and here's what you're to obey. And, and, and these are the demands. God demanded obedience. The law is very clear when you read in Deuteronomy. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. Very clear. The law demands works. The law says to you, get to work. But that wasn't the reason God gave the law. Because Paul's told us in verse 20 that by the law comes the knowledge of sin. That in our fallen condition, get to work is not what you need to do. In your fallen condition, get to Jesus by faith is what you need to do. And the law came in to show us how utterly sinful we are. And yet, our consciences are hardwired to the covenant of works. We want to slip We want to slip works in there at every chance we can get. We're starting to grow in sanctification. We try to slide it in there in our standing with God. Our hearts are very deceitful. Even the Christian heart is very deceitful. And so it's good for us to be reminded this morning that our standing before God is in Christ. We have a perfect righteousness in him. And it's by faith alone. Notice what Paul says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who 
believe? Well, the first question we have is, what does Paul mean by but now? Well, I think very clearly Paul means Christ has come. Christ came, and in the coming of Jesus, the purposes of all God's redemptive plan were fulfilled. All that God had purposed in himself from the foundations of the world that he had told Adam and Eve he would do in the garden, that he revealed through scripture, even in the giving of the law, all of that was pointing to the Lord Jesus. And when Paul says, but now, he's saying the legal mosaic era has ended, The Redeemer has come. He was born under the law. He came in to fulfill all righteousness. And now, in that very day, when Jesus Christ came, the righteousness of God was manifested. It was revealed. When we look at Jesus, we see the righteous one. I love John's description of Jesus in 1 John. He says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If you want to know what a righteous person looks like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know what a holy person is, you look at Jesus. You don't look at people you look up to. You don't look at other saints. Yes, they can be examples of godliness, but if you want to know what an absolute righteousness is, you look at Jesus. And when he met his cousin at the River Jordan and John said, you should, be, I should, you should be washing me, not me baptizing you. And, and Jesus says, permit it to be so now, for it is necessary that we fulfill all righteousness. And we don't want to miss that. Jesus, first and foremost, is not just a good religious teacher. He's not an ethical teacher, first and foremost. Christianity is not, first and foremost, here's how to live, here's what to do right, here's how to do it, because you can't do it. That's the very point of the Bible. We haven't lived right. Paul will say that in these very verses. Look, he says, there is no distinction, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the problem. The problem is we have traded the glory of God. We have all disobeyed. We are so much worse than we could ever imagine. Charles Spurgeon has this great saying, when anyone thinks ill of you, Um, he doesn't know the half of how bad you actually are. It's okay. It's okay. They don't know how bad you are. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God except for one. And he never sinned, and the Bible said that he was holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. And the Bible says that he was without sin, and he himself said that there was no unrighteousness in him. And here's the thing you've got to get this morning. Before we even talk about what is faith and what Christ did and, and, um, and, and what does it mean that God is gracious, we have to get this. Jesus is the righteous one. And that he was a righteous man. Yes, he's God. Yes, he's God. But he was a righteous man. And he was perfectly righteous. And everyone else is totally depraved. And the Bible says now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now, there's something else here because what Paul's saying is that there is a righteousness that God is giving. Not just that he demonstrates in his perfect life, but a righteousness that is manifested to us apart from the law. So if, if you plug into the word law, the word works, obedience, doing, whatever else you want to put in there, God says, for you to be righteous before him, there has to be a righteous standing and status that you get 
outside of what you do or what work she may accomplish or anything else she may trust in. Apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been revealed. In a sense, though the law is not set aside, and we'll come to that in more detail, in a sense, God is saying, don't look at the law and what the law demands, because when you look at the law and what the law demands, it will crush you, and you need to be crushed by it. You need to be crushed by it. It's the only way you're going to Jesus is if you're crushed by the law. If you have not ever gone to Jesus, it's because you've never been crushed by the law. The law has to crush us, and then God says, and here is my infinitely perfect son who lived the life that you never could have lived and who took all of your iniquity upon himself, and the righteous standing that you need before me is in him so that by faith, by faith, you are righteous before me if you have faith in my son, Jesus Christ. And what does Paul mean by faith? It's actually possible. It's possible our souls are so deceitful. It's actually possible for us to go to God with empty hands and say, God, I'm coming to you with empty hands. Receive me because I have empty hands, because I don't have anything. Receive me. And that's not saving faith. That's subtle. It's possible to go to God and say, I don't have anything good in myself. Receive me because I'm coming to you with empty hands. That's trusting in, in some act of supposed faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, as Luther said, is holding out empty hands and saying to God, I believe that you have done what you have said you have done in your son, Jesus Christ, and I receive him. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's what saving faith is. So when Paul says the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, he is saying Jesus accomplished everything that you need for a right standing with God. And let me say this this morning. Our human hearts by nature hate that. We hate hearing that. The world hates hearing that. Because what that says is, weak, 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 weak. And we hate hearing weak. And the people all around us hate hearing weak. And Paul says, unless you come to terms with the fact that you're weak, you will never come and receive the righteousness that God has provided freely because that righteousness comes to us in Christ by faith alone. I think when Paul actually says, by faith, you don't need to insert alone. It's so obvious. It's so obvious when he pits it against the law. It's by faith, not by what we do, not by works, not by works of the law. The negation is that it's nothing added to that faith. It is simple faith. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone, if you're trusting in him alone, in your soul, you have said, Father, I believe that you have done for me what you said you have done for me, and you are looking in faith to Jesus Christ. You are righteous before God. You are righteous. You are perfectly righteous. You will never be any less justified. You will never be any more justified than you are at this moment. That is, that is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And as I said last week, that is the hardest thing in the world to believe. 
It's the hardest thing in the world to believe. Well, notice that there's this question that Paul seems to be taking up when he asks this. Well, if, if Israel had the law in the Old Testament, and now you're saying it's not by the law, but it's by faith, does that mean that there were two ways of salvation? Is this something altogether new? What are we supposed to do with this, Paul? And notice what Paul says um, there in verse 21, that the righteousness of God, which is now manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What Paul is saying is that the entirety of the Old Testament teaches this doctrine. So that when we read in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He was teaching justification by faith alone. It's Paul's favorite go-to verse for this. Abraham believed and it was credited to him for righteousness. At that moment when Abraham believed, he was perfectly righteous before God, not in himself, but for his standing before God. It was as if, the Heidelberg Catechism says, as if he had never sinned, positionally in Jesus, as if he had never sinned. And Paul then tells us that the law and the prophets bear witness to this, that everything in the scriptures bore witness to this. One of the most wonderful um, uh, illustrations that God gives us is in the book of Zechariah, and you have Joshua the high priest, and he's got filthy garments on, and Satan comes in to accuse him before God. And Satan says, look at those filthy garments. How can he stand here before you? And the Lord says in Zechariah, I have taken off his filthy clothes and I have clothed him. I have clothed him with righteous robes. Isaiah, in the, Isaiah, the Lord through Isaiah says, I will clothe you with robes of righteousness. Now, I, that this could be allegorizing. I like to think that when we read in the Gospels that the Lord Jesus, and John makes a special point of, of pointing this out, that when the Lord Jesus, um, it said, had, had a seamless robe from top to bottom, that that was essentially uh, an illustration for you of what you get in him. You get the seamless robe of his righteousness. He provided, he did everything for that. Listen, how marvelous, how marvelous is that? That God has said, I have done everything. Look, here's why this is hard to believe. And Paul's going to pick up on this in Romans 6. This is hard to believe because Paul's going to have to answer the question, well, can we go on sinning then? That's why this is hard to believe. It's so good that, that it should sound too good to be true. And it's, it's so free. It's so free and it's so full and finished in Jesus that we ought to ask the question, well, then can I just go on sinning? That's the natural question that flows out of this. That's a perversion. God will say the power of sin was broken. He also transforms us in Jesus. He makes us holy. He gives us a personal righteousness, but that's not for your standing before God. And to confuse those two things is to confuse the gospel. Sinclair Ferguson says the moment, the moment that I start thinking that my growth in sanctification puts me in a right standing with God is the moment that I begin to destroy the gospel. The moment that I think my growth in holiness puts me in a right standing before God is the moment that I begin to destroy the gospel. And every one of us does that. 
Every one of us who is a true believer has at some time slipped into self-dependence mode and think by my performance, I am somehow keeping myself in a right standing with God. And Paul says, now apart from the law, a righteousness of God is revealed, even the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now notice secondly that Paul begins to unpack this for us. And he tells us that it is a righteousness of God in Christ alone. And he gives us the mechanics. Paul says, come here, let me show you how this works in more detail. And notice what he says. He says in verse 24, all have sinned and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There are several things Paul tells us. First, he tells us that the way this works for you is that Jesus becomes a propitiatory sacrifice. That's a word you, I know most of you never use. And here's what it means. He, he, he satisfies the wrath of God. The word comes out of the Old Testament about the mercy seat. Um, Paul would have used a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And the word, the same word here is used there of the mercy seat. And when the blood of the sacrifice went on the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant with the angels foreshadowing, God came. God showed up. And what that said to people was God accepted the sacrifice. His wrath was, was satisfied and that now he could be with his people in their presence. And notice that Paul tells us God is the one who does the work. God is the one who decides, I will justify. This is one of the most wonderful thoughts you could ever have. The God against whom you have sinned so miserably, the God that ought to send you to hell right this second, decided, I will save a people for myself. I will send my son. I will come in the person of the son of God. I will provide righteousness for them. I will satisfy my own wrath for them. I will satisfy it. I will take it away. I will remove it so that they now can be reconciled to me, justified, accepted forever, stand in my presence. And this is the beautiful thing. That's so important because if that doesn't happen, then God would be unjust to forgive you. No, everybody will say, I believe God forgives. I used to take people, there's a verse in Joshua, I think it's in chapter 24 maybe, um, where the Lord says to Israel, I will not forgive your sins. And I used to tell people when I witnessed to them, did you know God says in the Bible, I will not forgive your sins? And they'd be like, no. And he says to covenant people, I will not forgive your sins. And the point is, number one, God doesn't have to forgive anybody. And number two, God can't forgive anybody unless his wrath is satisfied, his justice is upheld. You see, uh, it's what Thornwell called a crisis in the divine government. There's a crisis. How can God maintain his righteous standard and how can God pardon sinners? That's the dilemma of existence. There's no greater dilemma that you could ever think about. How can God remain perfectly holy punish all sin, and yet clear, guilty, ungodly people like us. 
and it's in the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross. His wrath is satisfied. His justice is executed. The sword of his wrath falls on Jesus. All of your sins on him. You know, this was amazing to me. I was reading John Calvin this week, and, um, and we often like to talk about being in Christ. Paul uses forms of in Christ like 150 times in the New Testament. It's one of the most important things, that by faith you're in Christ. That means everything he is and has in himself is yours by faith, because you're united to him. But Calvin used a little phrase. Because of our union with Christ, he said, he was punished in our person. I want you to think about that. It's almost shocking. I, read, I had to read it like three times. I was like, I've never read someone put it like that. Christ was punished in your person. The union that we have with him from eternity, being chosen in him, and in time when he came and represented us, his people, the union that we had with him, he was punished in our person on the cross. John Gerstner used to say about the, the hymn, uh, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And he used to say, you bet you were there. You were nailed to that tree with Jesus. He was there because you were there in union with him. From the eternal counsels, God put his son there for his people. He took the punishment in your place. It was as if God poured all his wrath out on you. Get this. It was as if God poured his wrath out on you. That's marvelous. When your soul trembles, and we all have those times where we're thinking about what, what will it be like when I breathe my last? What will it be like when God says, for you, there's time no more? What will it be like? Because the only thing that separates us from the judgment throne of God is our breath. What will it be like when we cross? And when your soul is terrified because of all the wrong things you've done, remember this. If you're in Christ Jesus, God has already poured his wrath out on you. That's what propitiation is. He's already poured it out. You've already been punished, really and truly in Jesus. It's not a legal fiction. Really and truly in Jesus, you have already been punished. Now, if you're not a believer, that's not true for you. If you're not a believer, Paul writes these things so that you would see your need for that, that you would realize there is judgment, God is righteous, God is holy, God will punish all unrighteousness, and it's either going to be in union with Jesus for you, or it's going to be on you for all eternity. Those are the only two options. Notice what Paul says as he, he works through this line of argumentation. Notice there in verse 26, he says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it's a win-win for God. God's wrath is satisfied because he takes it on himself. He gives his righteousness to his people. He puts them in a right relationship with him. He receives them to himself. And God is perfectly vindicated. Perfectly vindicated. Oh, loving wisdom of our God. He is perfectly vindicated. He is just and he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And notice that as Paul continues to tell us what our Lord Jesus did. He tells us that in verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That term redemption comes from uh, the, the world of slavery. And essentially what Paul's saying is that Jesus put himself 
in the slave yard for us. He made himself a slave. He, he handed himself over so that you and I might be redeemed. Um, Our thoughts of Christ are so far from what they should be. He is so much, he is so much more loving, and, and the truth of what he's done for us is so much greater. We, we don't have an inkling of what all this means for us. We, we know some by experience. We know a lot intellectually. But he sold himself into slavery for us. He sold himself to redeem us. He took all of the wrath of hell. You know, a lot of people don't like the doctrine of hell. We shouldn't like the doctrine of hell. We should love the truth of scripture. And it is true. There's an eternal, there's, there is a, a eternal destruction coming for all who are not in Christ Jesus. But here's the thing we have to keep in mind. Jesus Christ sold himself into slavery in order to go through hell for us, literally, under the wrath of God to endure as an eternal being what amounted to eternal punishment at the cross so that you and I might be redeemed. Now notice, thirdly and finally, Paul tells us that all of this is by grace alone. It's almost, it's almost humorous to me that Paul has to tell us it's by faith, it's in Christ, and then just to make sure we get this, it's by grace alone. And notice that Paul says there, and, and he just says it almost in passing, um, uh, in verse 24, and we are justified by his grace as a gift, that there's nothing in you whatsoever, ever, that in any way elicited this kind of response from God. There is nothing that we have ever done that deserves what Christ has done for us. There is not one thing that we have ever done. And you know, it's interesting because we often sing, we often sing Amazing Grace. And I know this has been true for me many times, but in my heart, I don't know that grace is amazing when I'm singing it. And we talk about grace, we talk about Amazing Grace, and, and we, really, we really don't understand the magnitude of what it means that God, and I know this is a very controversial subject, God chose some before the foundation of the world, and he said, I am going to be gracious to this one, and I'm going to send my son to do everything that they need, and then by grace, I'm going to grant them repentance and faith, and I'm going to unite them to him, and I'm going to do everything for them by grace, and it's all undeserved, and I'm going to bring them to glory by grace, and then for all eternity, grace is going to be broken open on their heads, and there's something, as I've already said, there's something in the human heart that doesn't like to hear that. There's something in the human heart that doesn't like to hear that. And yet it is the most glorious, most wonderful truth ever. I want to ask you this this morning. When you think about your, your inner life, your thought life, what motivates you, um, why you do what you do on a day-in, today-out basis in the church, your role in the church, what, what, what role you play as a part of this body, when you think about all of those things, what, what are those things that are driving inside? Is it a knowledge that I deserve hell and that God has done everything for me in Jesus and I'm resting in him and I'm righteous in him and he's redeemed me. He became a slave to redeem me and he laid down his life for me and he did everything and it's sheerly by grace and my soul is singing because of that kind of grace, that amazing grace. 
you know, the hymn, Grace, grace, God's grace, greater than all my sin. When you think about the grace of God, do you think, grace that is greater than all my sin? That's the grace Paul's talking about. I think more often than not for us, though, in the recesses of our hearts and minds, as I said already, we're always trying to slide something we're doing in there. You know, I've counseled many people over the years who have struggled with assurance, and, and without fail, in every case, these are believers. I, I believe strongly that they were converted and they were regenerate, and without fail, in every case, every one of them at some level, and I know this in my own heart, were trusting in some way in what they were doing for their standing before God, had slipped into self-dependence mode, had thought somehow I get in by grace, God brings me in by grace, and that grace was amazing at the beginning, and I just I, I reveled in, in the love of Jesus and in what he had done for me, and I never felt so close to him, and now I just I don't feel the amazingness of grace anymore. And without fail, in every case, it's because they have slidden into self-dependence mode, a legal spirit in sanctification, and they've tried to slide their own works into their standing before God. And Paul just knocks all that down, and he says, it's by faith alone, it's in Christ alone, it's by grace alone. Now, that's what we need for the new year. Now, yes, we need more than that. We go on, and we're called to grow in holiness, and we're going to see all the wonderful riches of the call to live out what we are in Christ. But if we forget what we are, if we forget what we have, if we forget that we're perfectly righteous and that Jesus has satisfied God's wrath, we will not grow in grace. Peter says this. I'll close with this. In 2 Peter 1, he calls the church, he calls believers, um, Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. It's hard to say brotherly kindness fast. Add all those things. And then he says, he who lacks these things is short-sighted and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So if we're not growing in grace, it's because we've forgotten what we have in Jesus, what Paul says here in Romans 3, 21 and following. Um, I want to urge you to meditate on those things this year ahead. I want, as we start this year off together as a church, to be a church that really presses on to know how amazing grace is. That that wouldn't grow old to us or stale. We'd find that to be thrilling to our souls, what our Lord Jesus has done for us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church, let's pray. Our Father, we readily acknowledge that unless you do a work of grace in our souls, we can talk about these things and even sing about these things and yet be unchanged. And so, Lord, we humbly bow before you and we ask you to make your grace amazing to us again. We ask you to give us a sense of the greatness of what you have provided for us and the righteousness that we have by faith in Jesus Christ, that you would give us eyes to see the Lord Jesus and that when we start to sink, you would give us grace to cast our eyes back on him. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that we would know in a greater measure our union with you this year ahead, that we would know all that we have in you and all that you did for us 
in our person. We pray that you would build us up, Father, in Christ Jesus, and we pray these things in his name. Amen.